0: All right. Well, we are closing up the Isaiah series today. Lance gave me the finish. Thanks. And, uh, and so we are going to be closing it out today. And um, so we're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, last night, I, uh, I missed the fill in the blank in the first service, and I missed the closing challenge in the second. So today, I'm hoping to miss something else. So, um, so you know, we started this year, January 6th, going into the year of awakening, talking about the book of Isaiah. And we were walking into this gigantic and what I call quite jagged book. And what I mean by jagged is if you can imagine teeth, this book has been hope, judgment, hope, judgment, hope, judgment. And it just keeps going up and down. And Lance ended up starting off the year almost like a pirate ship pulling alongside of you and giving you a barrage of cannon fire. He's like, give him a broadside and and telling you what Isaiah's words say to us now and saying, to us today. And it was very somber. It was very like punch in the gut type of stuff. Let me remind you of a couple things that we said in the very beginning of the year, that the book of idea, Isaiah tells us that loving Jesus, a whole bunch is not going to allow you to do what you're supposed to do for his kingdom. That you can't settle on just thinking that that's enough to get you by, that we are not seeing God, right? We are not seeing ourselves, right? And we're not seeing reality, right? We're living as if we're invincible and we're going on as if we have all the time in the world. And not allowing God to change us. We're supposed to be telling people about God, but we get so caught up in our own drama, we become so inwardly focused that we start becoming corrupt and we don't do anything. And then we spend all our time complaining about what should be. He talked about how Isaiah is going to be a book of pride and unbelief and injustice, and that's what it's been. He talked about why do we believe that we get to live however we want to, to pick and choose when we will serve God and when we won't, and to slide in our disciplines. And Lance talked about how, for Israel, God had to bring them judgment to wake them up. And he asked, is that what we need? And yet, God didn't leave the situation bleak. God didn't stop right there with that aspect of judgment, because we've been reading in Isaiah all these things of hope. We've been reading about the suffering servant, that we have a future. We've been reading about how God is going to wreak havoc in Israel. He is going to tear down, but he also builds back up. He's not content to leave us where we are. And then just two weeks ago, in chapter 63 to the first part of 65, Lance came back to that theme of judgment. and He reminded us again that judgment is very real. And it's real because it's personal to God. Because when we go against the law, it's not that we're just going against a set of rules. We are going against the one Who personally has called us to his way. He talked about that jaggedness that I talked about in chapter 63. And he said something so wonderful that I don't think we can miss it because he talked about how God does not desire to bring judgment and wrath. And he quoted that part from 63 where he says, it takes a day for vengeance. And one day God can wreak havoc and wreck. But it says that it's going to be a year of redemption. Goodness is about years and years. Judgment is about one time. And so Lance talked about God setting us free. And why do we allow ourselves to remain enslaved if God is the one that's setting us free? Did we buy this belief that we just will always sin and so we'll hold on to some of our sins and let it rob us? He says that God has given us the power to take out the trash. And so that takes us in to Isaiah today and and the closing parts of Isaiah. And this whole book... Judgment and hope have been stacked together and you, sh- you see their link and you see their contrast. And you see that hope does not do away with judgment. And judgment is not the final word for those who will hear God's call. And so we'll go around and around in these last chapters. Hope, judgment, hope, judgment, hope, judgment. That makes us ask the question for ourselves as we get ready to walk into this text. What is our hope? In the weeks before you, what is your hope? For me, in the weeks before me, my wife is due with our third baby. So in the weeks before me, my hope is that her labor goes well, that we get a great child. But then you have to ask the question even farther. What is my hope beyond weeks into years? Do I see already what God can do in that child and shaping that child? And do I look even more farther in years and go, I want that child to experience Jesus Christ and to know him deeply. How do we look at our hope beyond just now? How do we look into years and years? And then the second part of that is how big is your hope? Every day we're tempted to throw this hope away, to doubt God, to think our prayers won't be answered, that God isn't listening or caring, to live as though none of this was really true. See, we're a people that we want stability so bad. We want to have enough, and yet we don't know what enough is. We want security How do you live with hope of something well beyond your personal specific world where those are the things that frame your heart and your spirit? You're going to see in in Isaiah that God's faithful love should be the basis of his people's faithful trust. That should be their grand hope. He pleads for obedience. He wants us to have a, a heart that delights in him and a life that glorifies him. You will hear in these passages that God is the only one in whom you can place your hope. He's the only one that can frame your mind and your eyes to see how hope can be lived out. And in what you're about to read, because we're going to go through these last two chapters, you're going to hear some things and you're going to go, oh, he's talking about heaven. And then he's going to say something else and you're going to go, wait a second, that's not heaven. What is he talking about? And you're going to see that Isaiah is the kind of prophet that he mixes several aspects of the final kingdom that in scripture are chronologically distinct, but they're spiritually identical. He's going to be talking about aspects of the new coming kingdom that Jesus was going around preaching about. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is here, but he's also going to be referencing towards the millennial kingdom. And if you don't know what the millennial kingdom is in Revelation chapter 20, it's the kingdom where there's a thousand year reign of Christ where Satan is bound and he's locked up, but he's not thrown off into the abyss yet. And it's a thousand years where the saints and people will, will reign kind of with Christ, but people still die. But he's also going to talk about the new heavens and the new earth that will exist after the first have passed away. And what you're going to see as well is that Israel has gone a long way since chapter one. If, I, if you get bored at any point during this message, and you probably shouldn't because I'm going to be talking really fast and dancing. No, I'm just kidding. You're like, what? <laughs> um, Jake was, I can, right? Um, I encourage you to go into the 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 first chapter of Isaiah. Because what you're going to see is so many parallels and so many echoes will come up in these last chapters from things that Isaiah was saying in the very beginning. Because in the very beginning, he talked about how Israel and Zion had become like a harlot. They'd become contaminated. They'd become so focused on empty ritual. And God's going to remind them once again what he will do and what he is doing. And even when it seems that God's promises are threatened by Israel's rebellion or their sin or their distraction or their empty ritual and pride, he's saying there is still wonderful hope ahead for those that will follow after God. And so let's walk into our text. It's Isaiah chapter 65, starting at verse 17. It's page 624 in the Bibles that you have either under your seats or before you. If it's in your Bible, I don't know. I don't know what Bible you have. So Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, let's go. All right, it starts by saying this, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Very familiar passage that we've heard before comes up in the book of Revelation and he starts by saying, I am the God that creates. And this is a powerful verb because it's going back to the book of Genesis and the very first verb that is used in the Old Testament, the word bara. It's that verb that only means something that God can create, not something that man or other people can. God is the subject. And God is saying, I am the one that created in the very beginning, and I can create again. And I have been recreating and working since I've been talking when you look in Isaiah in chapter 42. But what is it that he's creating? He's creating new things. And this idea of new is something that's different from what already existed. It's something that's fresh. It's something that's pure. And he's actually talking about a new order. He's talking about a new reality under a new empire. And when you hear that, you understand how it can apply to so many different things that Isaiah is mixing with the millennial kingdoms, the new heavens, and the new earth, and the coming kingdom that Jesus was preaching about. But he goes, I make these things new. I'm creating new things. And so the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind and the former things are all those first things of judgment and curse that israel has been hearing isaiah talk about from chapters 1 to 39 the old order is gone and now you're not going to even be prompted to look back ever again because these are new things that are happening when you know god is working with us and our sorrow and distress and rebellion imagine how great it will be when he works with us without these things and so let's move on to verse 18. It says, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. That's a lot of gladness in one spot. Six times he says, gladness or rejoice. And that, that word actually means to be openly, deliriously happy at, at once about something to come. That was Jake frolicking all over the stage up here, Right? is that he was openly deliriously happy about worshiping his God. And that's the same thing that's being talked about here is to have that type of open, delirious happiness, this hopeful happiness. And again, to hear that after reading the rest of Isaiah where it's been talking about sadness and distress, it's saying that God's creative action is sparking a new sense of wonder in you. And it should be a wonder that's more than your favorite team coming back in the World Series. Or a a, um, Super Bowl. It should be greater than the wonder of going to someone's wedding and finally seeing them have their vows taken before everyone. It's more wonderful than having your first child come out and getting to hold them in your hands. It's supposed to be something that makes you openly, deliriously happy about what God is still planning on doing. Then he says the nature of this new creation is that it will be gladness and joy. He says, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And there's something beautiful in what's happening there in the Hebrew because he's trying to set up this thing called an apposition, which is basically just a relationship between two things. Joy is Jerusalem. Gladness is her people. And we do this all the time with other things. If I were to say you hear the word Sin City, you think Las Vegas. If I were to say you hear an actor messed up in rehab, you think, don't say anyone's name. We're not going to be mean. But what he's doing is he's saying, when you hear the word joy, you think God's city. When you hear the word gladness, you think the people of God's city. And he wants you to catch that point. And he says the proper response to God's recreation is rejoicing. But look at the last line in verse 19. He says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. God is going to rejoice because of what is happening the place and the people that have been a source of grief and sorrow as he has to watch them writhe in their sin and he has to deal in rage and judgment is finally going to be gone and it's going to be that place that God has always wanted it to be. It's not just our hope. It's God's hope as well. And he is excited about it. It's like a parent seeing their child finally accomplish something and just going, yeah! You know that parent at graduation that you're the one that's going to stand up and your son or daughter is like, oh gosh... But you are so happy for them getting to that point. And God is looking at that the same way. But let's keep going. Verses 19 to 25, God's going to tell you more about this great reversal. And he's going to talk about the promises of security and longevity. And for the past four centuries, Israel and everyone in Isaiah has not experienced this. And so these promises are big. He starts by saying this, No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry or the scream of distress. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Again, you see part of this echoed in Revelation 21. And you see this fact that in God's kingdom, there's no longer going to be distress over untimely death. These are things that are similar to what he says in Isaiah 25, 7 to 8. No more tears, no more crying, no more weeping. But then he says that someone dying at 100 years old will be considered young. An old man filling out his days is going to be somebody like in the Genesis days that could live up to 969 years old. And so you read this, and a lot of people go, well, this obviously has to be the new heavens. and the, Wait a second, why are people dying? <laughs> why are there still sinners around? Okay, maybe this isn't the new heavens and the new earth. Right? And that's what makes people think that it's possibly the millennial kingdom right there. But there's another thing that can also be going on here, and that's the fact that, In the Hebrew, they're painting this picture that that is really trying to note two very specific things. One, that death does not have the same type of power in what's going to be going on. And that sin is not going to have the same type of presence. And it's almost like they're trying to say that. But let's keep going because he builds on this more. And he says in verse 21 to 23, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Part of what's happening here is something that we miss often because it's in two other books that we don't read very often. The book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. In Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, those are parts of God's covenant where he talks about if the people obey and they live according to the covenant, blessings will come. If they disobey and they drop the covenant, curses will come. And the curses that will come are the things that we just read here in verses 21 to 23, you find it in Leviticus 26:16 and Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 46. But now he's saying these have been reversed. These are no longer going to be curses. You're only going to experience blessing. And that's pretty powerful because that means that people are finally living holy right with God. And he says you're not going to deal with frustration. You're not going to labor in vain. And then he says this really interesting line where he says, the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. Now, a lot of us know that there's trees like the redwoods, and there's ones in Brazil and in S- South America, that these are trees that go from centuries to millennia in their age. For a people that's been so unstable and they feel like everything starts and stops, to hear that they will be a place that's stable and has longevity is such an awesome promise. But look at verse 24. This is probably one of the most powerful lines in this part. He says, Before they call, I will answer. While well, they are yet speaking, I will hear. Imagine a time where there's no pause between your prayer to God and his response. For any of you guys that have had to pray, and you've been praying for a year, or ten years, or twenty years for something, imagine a time where you pray and God's response is happening just like that. And one of the things we miss in the English is that the Hebrew has this word ani there. And that word knee means I myself. So he's saying, I myself will answer. I myself will hear. And when he says, I myself will hear, it means I myself will hear and take action. And what God is saying is he's saying, I'm going to be the one that is going to respond to all the things that you've been crying for. You're no longer going to have the thousand things filling our mind. You're no longer going to have to try to fix things or go to other people for things because when you call, I will answer. I myself will answer and take action. To me, this blows me away. The will of the people will be in such harmony with the will of God. That should bless us. That should encourage us. You see that in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 23. Daniel's praying for the nation of Israel. And then an angel, Gabriel, comes to him. And the angel says to him, at the beginning of your prayers, like right when you started, a word went out to God and he sent me to come and talk to you. God automatically responded the minute he got down on his knees. If you're somebody that has kids, you know that aspect of you knowing your kids so well that they're coming to go do something and you like have it out ready for them. And they're like, how did you know? And you're like, I'm your mother. I know you. (laughs) I birthed you, right? And then parents, dads as well, doing that. Or if you're a spouse, a lot of you guys know that you get to that point in your relationship where you know each other so well, you can finish each other's sentences, you know what each other's thinking, right? And you're able to, again, accomplish what the person has to do. My wife just did that yesterday for me. She knew I was going into this weekend. It was a busy weekend. She wakes up and she doesn't do this normally and that's not wrong. She wakes up, she makes me breakfast, she, 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 she helps me get ready, she kind of lays out what clothes I'm going to wear, and, and all this stuff. She makes me have lunch right before I go, and then makes sure I have gum before I'm going to come and talk to any of you. So thank, thank her for that. And, uh, you know, but all this stuff that I was thinking last night, the night before it, um, that I needed to do, but she knew I was thinking like that, and so she started doing it. Now, that's just a microcosm of what it can be like in this time when we're with God. And our hearts and our minds are on the same page with God. That should blow us away. Now he builds on it some more. Verse 25: The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. No more hurting, no more destroying. Now, this is something that Lance has already talked about in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. It's almost a parallel passage that talks about the same aspect of no more hurting and destroying. And I call all this a world where my mom doesn't have to worry. <laughs> because my mom was one of those worry warts that she was like, you go outside, you're going to die. Right? Like, I would go to the American River with friends to go skimboarding, and she's like, you're going to drown. And I'm like, it's three inches of water. You're going to drown, you'll get caught in a stick. Okay. And then I would would still keep going, no, we're not going to be, a car could fly off the bridge right over there and land on you. This is a world where my mom would have no more excuses, because you would be like, there's no lion that's going to eat me, he eats straw. And yet it says everything's going to change, right, with all these kind of laws of the jungle, except it says that dust will still be the serpent's food. Now that's taking you back to Genesis chapter 3. Where the curse is put on Satan and the serpent. And God's saying, in my new hope, everything will change. There'll be no more hurting or destroying, except the curse that's on Satan still stands. He is going to be cast down. And then it says this line that I feel like we pass over a lot, where it says, they're not going to hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And a lot of people go, okay, well, let's just continue on. He's just talking about a mountain. There's lots of mountains in the Bible. What he's talking about here is the Mount of His Holiness, which is called the New Zion. And Zion is this word that explodes in the book of Isaiah and is all throughout the Old Testament. And you have to understand what it is because it's the earthly spot where the reality of God's presence may be experienced. God no no longer talks about it as the temple. It's about Zion. It's the place where He is in our midst and we are in His. It's supposed to be the ideal vision of the city of God where God reigns as king in holiness and justice and His co-regent, His co-king, who is the line of David reigns with him. It's what we know as Jesus Christ reigning. And he's saying, this is Zion. This is that place where my kingdom in heaven intersects with earth. And that's what Jesus went around preaching and teaching to all the people and what people were longing for in Israel. So you can't miss this aspect of Zion because it keeps coming up all throughout Isaiah. And it's pointing to God's original and ultimate plan for, for humanity. It's God's ideal is to be in that place, Zion. All right, 65 done. Let's go into 66, which is a huge chapter. Here's how it continues. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What's going on here is that God is dealing with people that they are still trying to focus on the temple, but they're missing the heart of what all the temple and priestly activity was supposed to be. God is now rejecting those ways because he knows that they are incapable of perpetually cleansing the people. And he's going to install a more direct a more direct, um, a more direct spirituality for those who are meek and humble and those who tremble at his word. And so the problem is, is you have a people, and it's not far from today, where we use ritual and religion as a substitute to spiritual activity. God would rather have no temple at all if men think that that's all they have to do in order to do their service to God. And it's kind of funny, it's kind of ironic what's going on here, because you have God walking up to the people. This is the God that told them to build the tent of meeting, the God that instructed them to build the temple. And he's going up to the people in this passage, and he's saying wait, where did you say my house was? Isn't that kind of funny? Like if I heard God say that, I'd be like, God, you're funny, stop it. Right? Because God, you're the one that told us to build this. What do you mean you don't know where the house is anymore? And it's not that he despises that place anymore or that he's rejecting their motives prompted, but it's not where his eye focuses anymore. See, God's eye has been and he's now saying, I want you to understand that my eye does not focus on that place. My eye focuses in on your heart. That's where my eye is drawn to. So there's this contrast between the physical temple and the indwelling and the heart of those who submit to him. God's saying all other buildings are futile if I'm not in your heart. And that same thing is here for us. You can go to church your whole entire life, but if God is not in your heart, it doesn't matter. I know a lot of you guys, you come to church when you can, and it means something to you. But if God is not indwelling in you, then coming here and going through the motions doesn't matter. But God says, this is the one that I look at. To this is the one. To this one I will look. Someone who is humble. And that to me is one of the most complex words I feel like I've ever heard in my life. Because if I were to walk up to 90% of you, you probably couldn't describe what humility is. It's hard. It's a hard word. People will go, what means meek and mild? And I'm like, what does that mean? You know, like mild sauce? I don't know, you know, like meek and mild, but it really, it's this idea of willingly being ready to take the lowest place before and for God. What does that look like, to take the lowest place before and for God? I know that it means taking your hands off of everything. It means letting God be in control. I know one person described it as, it's like going on an airplane and letting them seat you wherever they want to. A lot of us go, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. But to go into a place where wherever God sends you, wherever God places you, whatever God asks you to do, you'll do it. But he says not only someone who's humble, but someone who's contrite. And that's somebody whose spirit is broken into pieces. Their pride and their self-sufficiency are lessened and they're tossed off because the person is deeply aware of their guilt and their sin. They are honest about who they are. Lance talked about this two weeks ago when he talked about the importance of confession. It's somebody that gets to that contrite spot where they go, I realize that I am messed up. Best best visualized in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, it's that one where the Pharisee goes to pray in the temple, and he's standing in the front, and he's going, God, I'm awesome, I tithe, I work in the church, I'm the man. But it says in the passage that he prays to himself. And then it tells you that the tax collector is in the far back part. He can't even draw near to God. And he just keeps beating his chest and saying, be merciful to me because I am the sinner. The sinner. He like isolates it all in on himself. Jesus preached about that for people to understand humility. And he's saying, that's the kind of person I want that recognizes who they are. But if that's not enough, he says, it's got to be somebody who trembles at my word, who has a reverent fear of God's word to be so affected by it that they're brought to repentance and obedience to what it says. Somebody that has enough reverence that when they hear his word, they allow it to produce faith in their heart and they keep going, I want to understand it and I want to keep obeying it. I could talk about this for hours, and so I'm going to post a really good article on the city that you can read that unpacks that idea of trembling at his word a lot more. But this is another aspect of the new hope and the new creation God's doing is that it's no longer an emphasis on place. It's an emphasis on God's word now. You cannot neglect God's word because that is the type of people he wants, is people that tremble at his word. You see it come up in Isaiah chapter 40 and in the very beginning in chapter 2. And it's quoted in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7 by Stephen and Acts chapter 17 by Paul. When he's in Athens, you have these guys recognizing that God no longer is working with the temple. He is now working in the indwelt hearts of people like this. Let's keep going, verses 3 to 4. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. idol. They have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears among them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. Sounds kind of familiar. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Now, remember how I've said that a lot of this parallels back to Isaiah chapter 1? What we're reading here is what Isaiah 1, 10 to 15 talks about. About how the people were going into their rituals, but their correct rituals were senseless. They lacked meaning. They no longer were symbolizing repentant or obedient hearts. They weren't necessary anymore. But then there's this really interesting thing happening in the Hebrew that we miss, in the English, in that second half where God is saying, They chose their ways, their soul delights. I chose, I bring their fears, but they chose evil. They chose what I did not delight. And God's trying to show this contrast between what they're doing, what he wants, but what they're doing. And he's trying to show a contrast to what he just talked about with the humble and the contrite in heart and those who tremble at his word. He's going, do you get it? Do you get the things that I want? You're not fixing your eyes on the things that matter to me. Come on. If any of you guys have ever seen the the show The Newlywood Game, you guys remember this? Very old show. Very well known for their use of the word whoopee. The Newlywed Show was a show where couples would get together and one would have to write down an answer to a question while the other was out of the room. The other person would come in and they would try to answer the same question and you would see whether or not their answers were the same. And two things would happen. One would be, one person would hold up the answer, the other person would hold up the answer and they were both right and they would be like, oh, we're so awesome, right? And then there would be the other ones where one would hold up the answer and the other one would have the total opposite and they would be like, what are you talking about? they would start like yelling at each other and it was to see how close newlyweds were in being on the same page about what each other wanted what each other delighted in and god is going hey we're like playing this game and this is what i desire this is what i delight in why are you choosing this and it's just of god's looking at us going why did you write that down but then the part that's to me most interesting here is he says, When I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. They're ignoring Yahweh's calling. Who, in verse 24 of the last chapter, God has just said, When you call, I'm gonna answer. But he's going, you, when I'm calling, you're not even you're like you're like deaf. And when you hear God saying that you're deaf to what he's calling to, that should really sober you. That should really make you go. Wait a second, am I really missing what God is trying to say? And so God says, I have to choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. But let's keep going. Verses 5 and 6. This one gets a little confusing. It says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city. A sound from the temple. The sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. And this is a really interesting passage because it's really hard to read. You read it, and I had to read it like ten times in the English and like three times in the Hebrew. Because I'm like, who is talking to who and what's going on here? Who is doing good? Who's doing wrong? And, and what I had to end up concluding from reading and reading commentaries is that he's giving assurance to the faithful While trying to assess the kind of hypocritical actions of the others. And so what's going on is that one group of people is trying to live with that humility. And they're trying to live with that aspect of trembling at God's word. And the other ones are persuaded that they're the true members. And and having that kind of humility and fear of the Lord is just foolishness. And so what's going on is the one group is the one that's quoting this line saying, Let the Lord be glorified. They're the ones that are mocking the others. And what they're trying to say almost sarcastically is, well, yeah, may the prophecies be fulfilled and may God humble Babylon and release Israel and restore her that we may witness your rejoicing. We should gladly steal this, but we don't in the least bit expect it. You can have your humble faith, they say, but that's not realistic. And that same thing comes up in our day and age. Paul talked about it in Corinthians, that people will go, You want to believe in a God? You want to believe and look forward to a new new hope? Well, that's not realistic. That's foolishness. And it tells us that often the message of the cross is going to be considered foolishness to so much of the world. But then God says, I'm going to shame those people that think that way. And he brings on that last verse, verse 6, where it says the word sound or voice comes up three times saying that God is going to resist. Um, Resistance to Yahweh desires reading this wrong. Resistance to Yahweh's desire brings God's voice. God will bring voice and those words for sound are battle trumpets. Battle voices being sounded and God's saying in the city, in the temple, my word is coming and it's not comfortable. And then we move on to verse 7. and verse 7 to 24, is all going to close out so many parts of Isaiah. It's going to close out chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, about Israel being a city on the hill to which all people would flow. It's going to close out Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 9, of the good news for Jerusalem actually coming to play. It's going to be a, a finish of chapters 45, 49, 54, 60 to 62 of the restoration of Jerusalem. They're all going to close up here. You're going, wow. There's been a purpose all throughout Isaiah to bring these things to completion. Let's read verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? What a graphic way to talk about a new world coming into play. But he talks about this image of painless and effortless childbirth. If you're a woman that's given, given birth before, say amen. 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 Because you all wish that there was no pain and no effort in childbirth. Men, we have no idea. He gives this image and he's saying, what's been born? Zion. Jerusalem re-centered and refocused why is it miraculous because it's going to happen so quickly it's not going to be held back if god's brought it this far he's going to, it's unthinkable that he would turn back now and god makes all these questions these rhetorical questions come up have you ever heard of such a thing have you ever seen of such a thing can a nation show up just like that and what isaiah is doing is he's going yes it can when god's doing it nothing is impossible with god when he wants to make his new things happen nothing can threaten what god is doing And God is not going to stop what he's doing. Look at verses 10 to 13. It says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. Oh, great. More happy and gladness. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream and you shall nurse you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts so i will comfort you you shall be comforted in jerusalem and isaiah is saying you have another reason to worship you have another reason to rejoice because change is happening god's spirit is working powerfully you can look forward in hope he gives that picture that's a very common picture, but very unique in Isaiah here of a deep relationship between an infant and a child with its mother, because the mother is giving it what it's, what it needs. There's very few places that you see this in scripture, but it reinforces the depth of God's concern and his care that can only be equated with a mother, a mother and its infant. And he gives four different things to talk about it. First, he talks about that satisfaction and that delight where the mother knows that she has what is needed for her child to live, and the baby can do nothing to satisfy its, satisfy its own needs, it has total dependence on the mother. But then he moves on to these things of the child growing up, and he talks about, and God will carry you upon the hip. You have to get that picture in your mind that I feel like I see sometimes when I walk through the mall, of those mothers that they have one child on one hip, the other on the other hip, right? And then often like a five-year-old hanging on their neck. And you're like, you're super bomb. Right there, but it's this mom that cares and she knows that I need to hold them. I need to carry them to where they're going because they can't keep up or maybe they can't even walk, right? And God's saying, I carry you like that. I have allowed Zion to carry you and I carry you like that. But then he gives to me one of the best pictures that I think I've ever seen in scripture. And it's this aspect of God saying, and he bounces us upon his knee. It's not often that you hear scripture say that God wants to sometimes just play with you. That's the depth of God's love. If you're a parent or a grandparent, and if you've ever had a little kid on your knee and you're bouncing them and they smile and they're like, ah, ah, ah. it's so lovely. And God's saying, that's you and me. And then he finishes with this last one that's so distinct because he says, I'm going to give them comfort. But that comfort is now different because the Hebrew there is no longer a child, it's this word ish, which is the idea of a young man or a grown man. And it's this word that has the idea that now the mother is comforting them in an hour where their need is much deeper than the basic sustenance of nursing or being carried or being played with. It made me get a flashback of that part in the movie Ratatouille where the the main bad guy ego, that's the, the kind of taste tester, comes and he eats the food. You guys know what I'm talking about? And he eats the food and automatically he has that flashback to when he comes in and he's crashed his bike and his mom now gives him his best meal. And now he suddenly finds this, and he softens up. And God's saying, I comfort you well beyond just being a little child. These are not arm's length, empty actions, but they are intimate and close. Our God is a God that is close to us. Our God is a God that cares about us. He goes on to talk about, he's going to extend peace to her like a river, like an overflowing stream. This wholeness that's constantly going to flow and be full. And that's in contrast to what they've been hearing about Assyria and Babylon overflowing on them like a river or like a tidal wave. So these make us ask the question that's also the fill in the blank on your sheet. You thought I was going to miss it. What is the focus of your faith? What is the focus of your faith and hope? How can you live out faith where you now are full in satisfaction and in comfort of who you are to God and what he's doing and what our final eternal dwelling is going to be? But it doesn't stop there. We're still going. Verse 14 says, you shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Where he's saying you need to experience the wonders which God has been speaking about. But he says, the hand of the Lord shall be known. And the hand of the Lord is going to make a distinction between two types of people. For his servants on one side with the power to save, for his enemies on the other side with the power to punish. And that question lies there. Am I among the servants or the enemies? Verse 15 tells you what will happen. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pigs' flesh and the abominations and mice. What? Shall come to an end together, declares the Lord very common pictures in the old testament god as divine warrior with his chariot army with him god as fire unapproachable in holiness and power for those who have already been made holy by god god in his fire poses no scare to those who are depending on their own efforts to see god in fire freaks you out because you're like what is about to happen but God says, I am dealing with those people who have camped out on their evil. And he goes through all those things that are really random, purifying themselves for gardens, falling one in their midst, with most commentators don't know what that means, eating pork, thank goodness for the new covenant, abomination. And then he says, and mice. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I didn't know that was an issue, but I started going, well, what do we consume nowadays that involves a mouse with red pants on? Never mind. So... These things are things that come up again in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 2, and Isaiah chapter 65, the first half of it. These are things that have already been mentioned. And what one guy says, and he says it very well, is he says, When people cease to heed the word of God, it's not that they believe in nothing, but that they will believe in anything and run after anything that they believe will make them acceptable to God. They no longer care about delighting in his ways. They don't hear his words. So they go, anything religious, anything spiritual that I feel will make me feel better before God, I will try. But God says, that's not what I want. Let's read verses 18 to 21. We're almost done here. He says, for I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, who draw the bowl. The bow to Tubal and Javan to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. It's another confusing passage because you don't know exactly who God's talking about. God knows their works and he knows the thoughts behind them just like he's talked about in Isaiah 55. And he's talking about using someone's either failed or accomplished efforts to draw the world to himself. He's ready to send people out to convert and unite the nations. But one thing that comes through very clear is he says, I will set a sign among them. And that word oath is a word that comes up so much in the Old Testament and the the Greek word for for sign that comes up so much in the New Testament is always so important because God sets signs to get our attention. God sets signs to rally people together and in this case, this sign rallies people together to go out and do something. And I believe that sign is very clearly the cross of Jesus Christ. That God is saying, I'm going to set a sign. And all those survivors, and that's another question mark, right? What are the survivors of? But he says, all the survivors are going to be sent out to acop- accomplish my mission of sharing my glory and fame among the entire world. Are the survivors Israel coming back from Babylon? Are the survivors um, Israel after the, the fall of the temple in uh, in AD 70? Is it the survivors of the church? I don't know. But I know that God is going to send those. And they're going to go out and bring all the brothers, Gentile and Jew, back to the Lord Anybody that hasn't seen his fame or seen his glory. And God says, bringing those people to God's glory is more acceptable than the offerings. God cares about the lives of people. He cares about you talking to people about who he is. And then he says something that to a Jew would have blown them away. Because he says, when you bring these Gentile brothers in, I'm going to make some of them to be priests. In In the Jewish world, not even all Jews could be a priest. It was either someone from the line of Aaron or the Levitical priesthood. And God's saying, I'm going to let them all be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. See, God has always expanded this idea of redemption and gathering, and God wants to bring the whole sinful world close to him before he closes things out. Let's finish it off, verses 22 to 24. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The end. Nice finish, Isaiah. <laughs> judgment, hope, judgment, hope, judgment, hope, judgment. Wow. This is, people, this is hard for people. Although you have to realize what everything he's saying right before he's talking about hope and he's saying everything that I created and remake is going to happen. The promise that I gave to Abraham of having a name and a seed continues from month to month and week to week. All flesh will come and worship and bow down before me no longer because of sin and sorrow, but in feasting and celebrating. It makes me think of Philippians 2:11 that says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yet this isn't a fairytale ending right here. Isaiah, like in chapter 6, can't avert his eyes from the fact that people some people will still reject the good news. And so he highlights this quasi-cemetery be, beside the city. And he says, the future state of the faithful is still going to come across the future state of the rebels. Because those who are worshipping are going to be reminded of what stubbornness and resistance to God ends in. It's a witness of eternal life and eternal death. And it finishes with hell. Isaiah is the one that brings in these terms for the first time in the scripture. And then Jesus picks up on them in Mark chapter 9 verses 47 to 48. Speaking of sin leading us to torment and fire. Why? Why does God have Isaiah finish it on a grim note? I don't think that's the question. I think the question is why continue to fight God? Why should anyone continue to fight God? Why keep trying to create your own ways that even if it kills you, you will still do it the way you want? Judgment can be turned into hope if we let God do it for us. Because what is your hope? The good news of the servant who is Jesus Christ is our hope because Jesus entered into our judgment and took it on himself. And nothing can keep us from that love. Let me read you guys One little statement from a guy named Moitier who writes a great commentary on Isaiah if you ever want to look at it. He says this about the finish. If the glory does not win us to live, if the the glory does not win us to the life of obedience, if visions of the coming king, the sin-bearing servant, and the liberating anointed conqueror will not suffice, then maybe the unmistakably horrible rewards of disobedience will drive our wayward hearts to tremble at the word of the Lord. I described it to the band, the night, um, last night before we, uh, finished as this, I think God told Isaiah to do it this way. Have you guys ever had somebody that was standing kind of near the edge of a pool and you were like so tempted, you just want to go and you want to push them in. Right. And what do you do? You go over and you grab them. Right. And they, and they, for that moment, you're not pushing them in, but they, for that moment are like, right. Because there's that moment of fear of, I could fall in because of that person. I think God told Isaiah, in what he was writing and how he was progressing all this, that he goes, I've told them about hope. I've told them about my servant. i told them about all this stuff. And for those that that's not enough to continue to drive them in their hope, Isaiah, you need to go over and you need to grab them. So they have that moment of going, that undying warm and that unquenchable fire is the possibility. And it's supposed to get our attention. Why continue to fight God? What is the focus of your hope? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this gigantic and jagged book of Isaiah. Lord, thank you for showing us that judgment and hope interlink and overlap, and you are getting our attention. You're telling us about the new things that you can do, the new things that you can create. God, I pray that you would just fall upon our hearts, God. You say that you want to indwell and focus your eye upon our hearts. You want us to be people that are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word. Make us into those people. Show us how to do that. Stir in us and inspire us to not be people that go through religious ritual and go through the motions and go through routine, but people that truly seek after your face. God, we we look forward to that new hope. We look forward to how that affects our life now. It's not just future. It begins now with how we live. So Lord, we love you and we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the servant.